Romans chapter 4, verses 22 to 25. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. I, for one, am so thankful that God has raised up songwriters in every age. That's a great song we just sang. The truth of that song is what I've been trying to preach for the last year and a half. And if you don't get it from me, please get it from this song. That is a great song. And may it become one of the signature songs of our our life together. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. I had intended to speak for one week on this text, and now I'm going to spend two weeks on it, because on further reflection, I just saw so much and knew that the Lord's Supper was this morning, and I wanted to be in sync with what God would do there. So let me tell you what's coming next week, and then zero in on the simple thing and glorious thing for this morning. Here are my questions that I want to try to tackle next week. Why is faith credited to Abraham and to us as righteousness. In other words, the word therefore at the beginning of verse 22, therefore it was credited to him as righteousness. Why? What's the therefore referring back to and how does it follow that because of it, faith is credited to Abraham as righteousness? Second question, what sort of faith is credited as righteousness. If we're looking back to Abraham as our model, was it the first act of faith in the Ur of the Chaldees when God came to Abraham and said, go to the promised land, not knowing where he was going, he believed God and went? Or was it the faith that he exercised in chapter 15, verse 6, where God showed him the sky filled with stars and said, such will your descendants be? Or was it the faith of chapter 17 when God said to a 99-year-old man with a 90-year-old wife whose womb was barren, you're going to have a son next year named Isaac. Was it the faith that he exercised there that was credited to him as righteousness? Or was it the faith of chapter 22 when he lifted the knife over his son Isaac and believed that he would have him back from the dead if he killed him? Was that the faith? That God credited to him as righteousness. Is it the faith at the beginning? The faith at the end? The faith in the middle? Is it all of it? And the third thing for next week is... How is faith credited to Abraham as righteousness? What is the meaning of faith being credited as righteousness? Does it mean that um, justification costs five million dollars... And I can only come up with one million, faith. 
and God looks at my one million performance and says, good enough. We'll cancel the four. We'll take the one. We'll count it as five. You're justified. Is that the way to think about faith being counted as righteousness? If so, what becomes of the great uh, doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness and God's righteousness in and through Christ? So you can see why this takes more than a week. Now that's next week. Let me pray that God would give us help now with this morning's simple focus. Father, before I move into this morning's word in this great text, I ask for your help in these remaining minutes of this worship service. That I would worship over this word. And that the hearers of the word of God would worship as they hear. And that some who are in this room who want to worship and can't worship. Or who don't want to worship and ought to worship. That all of us together would be worshipers of God over the word. By the time the Holy Spirit is done with his great work in this service. Oh, come, may your people be praying earnestly even as they listen and rejoice over the word of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This week the question is, if our faith is going to be credited to us as righteousness, in whom or in what? Are we to believe? What do we have faith in? And to answer that, we pick it up in verses 23 and 24 here. And notice how Paul gets toward it. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. But for our sake also. Let's start there. Here's the point of that little phrase. Don't miss it because it is directed to everybody in this room. What was written down in Genesis 15, 6, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness, was not written just for Abraham. It was written for you. So please give heed. This is the Apostle Paul Speaking to you, saying, when God inspired Moses to write, it was credited to him as righteousness. He had you in mind this morning. That's what this text is saying. It isn't written just for his sake 3,000 plus years ago. It's written for your sake this morning. So don't think, oh my, this is a 2,000-year-old text talking about a 3,000-year-old event. Absolutely irrelevant for me and my life. That's not the case. God can see you before you are. He can write a Bible that is relevant for you. And he did. And he did. So the, the point so far is God saying through this text, trust me, rest in me, come to me, lean on me, bank on me, hope in me. Don't bring me your righteousness. You don't have any. I bring you my righteousness. 
Receive, receive, receive. Don't work, don't work. Now unto him who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly. It will be credited to him as righteousness. Don't work, receive, rest, count on, lean, hope. That's the word coming through here for every person in this room. So please give heed for these next few minutes. Now verse 24. Believe what? Believe what? Believe in whom? So let's let him define it for us. Namely, middle of verse 24. Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And then he says something about this Jesus. Verse 25. He who was delivered over for our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. That's who we have to be believe in in order to be justified. Paul identifies the God we believe in by what he's done. Faith will be credited to you this morning as divine righteousness... If you believe in this God. So we need to find out, believe in what about him? What is it about him that we're to believe in? And there are three ways I want to say it. Inconceivable power. Merciful redemption. Triumphant justice. Those are my, that's the outline of the rest of my message. Now, let me step back and get the bigger picture with you in Romans 4. Romans 4, interestingly enough, up until right now, in verse 25, has not talked about the foundation or the basis of our getting right with God, but only the means of our getting connected with the foundation which gets us right with God. It's, it's been all about faith. And how God reckons us righteous through faith alone. That's what chapter 4 has been about. It hasn't talked about the, the foundation of the performance of that righteousness. Which now he will hit on as he ends this chapter. So he's, he's arching back over to chapter 3 verses 24, 25, 26. Where he described the death of Jesus as the foundation for what happens today in our lives through faith called justification. Getting right with God. Having a right standing with God. Having His righteousness credited to our account. All of that is the means by which we are justified. But the, the foundation and the basis of it is all in history. Outside ourselves. Doesn't happen in here. Happens out there. God did it in a transaction between Himself and his son Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. And so Paul is, is going back now, all the way back, down underneath what he's been talking about and getting at foundation and basis, not means. Now, that distinction is really important. So I brought along a little visual aid here, a book. This book is called Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray, who's with the Lord Jesus now, I believe. And he taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia for a long time. And this book I read 25 years ago. You see, it's an old book because it, it's a very unattractive cover. 
No book would ever go on the market looking like this today. This is a great book. We probably don't have any more in our bookstore now after the first service, but we'll get more. And my hope and my desire is that everybody in the church would read these 185 pages. And the reason is because they are so dense with God. You read these book, these pages and understand them, and you will be so rich. Your fiber, the fiber of the tree of your life will be strong. It will be steel woven through the fabric of your personality so it won't unravel in difficult times. Now, the point of the title, what brought this book to mind as I was getting this message ready, is you've got these two qualifiers of the word redemption. Redemption accomplished, that's foundation. And applied, that's application. Romans 4, up until now, has been all about applied. By faith, for the sake of your getting right with God. Now, in the last verse, we're talking again about accomplishment. Redemption accomplished. A basis, a foundation for all this talk about faith and justification. So let's go to it, and I'll try to explain where I get these three phrases. Inconceivable power, power, merciful redemption, Triumphant justice. We must, if we are going to be justified, trust in a God who, who performs those three things. Let's take them now one at a time so that we can get the rock of foundation under our feet and stand on it by faith. Number one, we must trust in a God who performs inconceivable power. And I have in mind the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So I will read for you verse 24 in the middle again. We believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Now, why does he put the resurrection of Jesus first and then drop back and talk about the death of Jesus. It's out of chronological order. And then he ends up with the resurrection again. And here's the reason. Because Paul's linking the resurrection of Jesus with the birth of Isaac in verse 17 and 19. Because the faith of Abraham is the model for our faith. And the faith of Abraham was in one who could raise the dead. And it was foreshadowed in verse 17 with words like these. Him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead. He's talking about Abraham here now in verse 17. Abraham believed in one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And the most immediate application for Abraham of that was, God says, one year and this woman... 90 years old with a dead womb and you, 99 years old and a dead sexuality are going to have a son. And it isn't going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac. And so verse 19 describes that like this. Without 
becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead. There it is again. You see the link up with the resurrection of dead Jesus. As good as dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So the point here of putting the resurrection of Jesus and the God who raises the dead Jesus first is to make sure we see the link with verse 17 and 19 that the faith we exercise in order to be justified is the same faith that Abraham exercised in order to be justified. It is in one who exerts inconceivable power in raising Jesus from the dead and makes him Lord of the universe. Don't miss the word Lord in verse 24. We could linger over that for a half an hour, but we'll just point to it. This is Lord Jesus that is alive from the dead now. So this is no ordinary resuscitation as though there was some swooning here. Now, why do I call it inconceivable? I just think that's a nice adjective, big adjective. Where do, why do I choose the word inconceivable to put on the front of this power that raises Jesus from the dead? There's a reason. It isn't because you can't conceive of it. I know that you can. You can conceive of somebody who raises another from the dead. Maybe. I can. The reason I choose the word inconceivable is because we're coming to the end of the 20th century. A century which has been defined primarily by a philosophy called naturalism. Which simply means that what is real is what is within the space-time continuum of nature. There's no reality outside of that. That is inconceivable. Technically. Can't conceive of it. We must explain all things by virtue of what is accessible to our telescopes, our microscopes, and our little brain. And there is no reality beyond the nature. The most common form of this is naturalistic evolution with the effort to try to give an account to the origin of all things and the destiny of all things without going outside of things that are in nature. And so there's just a blank. You, you, you use names for it at the beginning, Big Bang, but nothing, no explanatory power beyond that. You stop there and you describe what's on the other side as inconceivable. Now, I'm not trained in science and, and just dabble around in magazines and whatnot, but I was trained for a long time as a critical New Testament historian. And so I came at this whole issue that route. And the dominant philosophy is just as powerful in the universities, in the Bible departments, the theology departments, the religion departments, the comparative religion departments, as it is in the scientific departments. The most famous sentence probably that's ever been uttered on this in the 20th century was uttered by Rudolf Bultmann in his book Kerygma and Myth. And it goes like this. A historical fact which involves a resurrection from the dead is utterly inconceivable. Now that's standard 
naturalistic history. That's, you do history with that assumption. History is that. Anything beyond that that you can get at through documents and reconstructions with your mind and with what you can perceive and get your hands on is inconceivable. It breaks the rules and you can't have the rules being broken because if the rules are broken, then your closed system is in jeopardy. So I choose the word inconceivable simply to be in their face. In order to be justified, we must believe in a God who performs inconceivable power by raising Jesus Christ from the dead as Lord outside the universe as well as inside the universe. Creator of it, and now by virtue of the miraculous incarnation, member in it. We must believe in a God who performs inconceivable power. That's the first answer to the question, what do we believe in order to be justified? Here's the second answer. We must believe in one who performs merciful redemption. I get this from verse 25. Two powerful phrases. He who was delivered over. It's talking about Jesus. He who was delivered over. That's the first phrase. Because of our transgressions. That's the second phrase. Now here's the main thing to see about these two phrases. They teach us that the one... God raised from the dead died by design. It isn't as though God thought, all right, I need to have a performance of inconceivable power here so that those who will be justified will have something to believe in. So I will now look around for a really dead person. I must have a really dead person to work on because if I don't raise a really dead person, then I won't show my inconceivable power and they won't have anything to believe in. So I will look around and I find one. He was crucified, so you know he's really dead because when you're crucified, it is horrible. And so he, and we'll leave him in the tomb these three days and now we know he's dead and so I ought to raise him from the dead and look, there I have done an inconceivable thing in exerting my power. Now believe in that and you will be justified. That is not the way it happened. This death was by the design of the one who raised him from the dead. Now where do I get that? I get it from the phrase, first, he who was delivered over. And I ask you, delivered over to death by whom? And you could say, Pilate, a Jewish mob, soldiers, Herod. And you'd be right. But would you be saying what Paul meant when he said he was delivered over? And the answer is no, you wouldn't. And the reason we know that is because Pilate and Herod 
and the soldiers and the Jewish mob did not deliver him over because of our transgressions. One person delivered him over because of our transgressions. God. And so you find written numerous times in the New Testament, Acts 2.23, this man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Or Romans 8.3, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, for transgressions. Or Romans 8.32, he, God, did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. It's very plain. Paul means, behind that passive verb in verse 25, was delivered over. He means by God, his Father. There's a design going on here. There's a design. God Almighty is thinking of a design. There's a purpose. And the purpose is stated in the second phrase there, because of our transgressions. I can easily imagine come Easter that one of the lead editorials in the Minneapolis Tribune would have a title that reads something like Divine Child Abuse Repudiated. It's coming. Let's just wait and see. This is a little prophecy. I'll hold it up when it comes. Meaning, I'm not making this up, I've read this kind of liberal criticism of the substitutionary atonement. It's very, very common. Those who do not believe that God put forth his son to die because of your transgressions, mock it by calling it divine child abuse. And then they say, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you call it that? Kill your son? So you've got to make some heavy-duty choices this morning between whether you'll buy into that kind of scorn or whether your life hangs on this glorious work of the Father and the Son who agreed together to accomplish an atonement for all your transgressions. Do you see in the death of Christ a work of God that is the paramount expression of love in the universe? Or do you see divine child abuse? This is redemption. He wanted to deal with your transgressions. He had two ways to deal with them. Send you to hell forever. Or send his son to death. That's the two choices. And only his son could do it. Only his son could perform it. Verse 3 of chapter 8. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That's what this is. On account of transgressions, condemned sin in the flesh. You got two choices. You can bear your condemnation, 
Or you can believe that God condemned it in His Son. Those are your only choices. So if you mock the transaction between the Father and the Son as divine child abuse, you will perish. And you will discover perhaps in perishing what love really was. Don't reject it. Please don't reject it. I call it merciful redemption. I call it redemption because that's a a good biblical word of ransoming us. Delivering us, freeing us, rescuing us from the condemnation of our own transgressions. We had no hope. We're all sinners. We perish and we're condemned if somebody else doesn't bear our condemnation. Because God is just and it will be born. Either by us or by Jesus. And I call it merciful redemption because we didn't deserve it. There's not a person in this room who deserves this. So it's merciful rescue, merciful deliverance, merciful saving, merciful redeeming. And this you must believe in order to be justified. So now we've seen two answers to the question, whom do we believe We believe the one who performed inconceivable power, inconceivable power in raising his son, Jesus, as Lord of the universe. And we must believe in the one who performed merciful redemption for people who don't deserve it by designing the death of his own son as a substitute for us. Now, finally... One last thing. We must believe in one who performs triumphant justice. Where do I get that? I get it from the last phrase of verse 25. See if you can follow with me for a few closing minutes. Because of our justification. He was put to death. Now watch the parallel. In the Greek as well as in the English of good translations, it's, it's the parallel construction. He, he was put to death because of our transgressions and he was raised because of our justification. What does that mean? Because of our justification. I take it to mean that when Christ died and was buried, and spent his time in the tomb, that death so completely and perfectly purchased our justification and paid the full debt and the full condemnation of all of our sins that there is absolutely now no just warrant For Jesus staying dead. And it would be a matter of injustice on God's part if he stayed dead. Because he so fully and completely paid the debt 
and atone for the sin and executed the judgment on the sin. Or think about it this way. The sins that brought Jesus to death were not his own sins. They were our sins. We believe, and the whole New Testament teaches, that in his death, those sins are perfectly atoned for, covered, condemned, executed. Therefore, the only sins that brought him to death are now finished. Nothing remains to keep him dead, except injustice. And God is not a God of injustice. And therefore, there is a triumphant justice in verse 25. In the sense, triumphant because it triumphs over death. It triumphs over hell. It triumphs over sin. And it's just because Christ had finished it. When he hung on the cross and said, it is finished, he meant this Death that I am dying is all that will ever need to be done to forgive your sins. No subsequent performances can pay any additional merit, any additional value, any additional worth to what has to be rendered in order for you to be forgiven. It is finished. And because it was finished, it is a matter of justice that he come out of that tomb. He could not be held. And so I close by simply now reminding you of these three things. If we ask this morning, all right, I want to be right with God. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to be condemned. I don't want to be sentenced to condemnation or bear my own guilt. What must I do to have the righteousness of God imputed to me and my sin on Jesus? Answer, you must have faith in one who performed an inconceivable power in raising his son Jesus from the dead as Lord of the universe. And secondly, you must believe in one who performed a merciful redemption by designing before you were ever born a redemption that's merciful. He designed a death that would be a substitutionary condemnation of your sins on another. And finally, you must believe that he performed triumphant justice by raising Jesus from the dead because the payment was so perfect, it was over. And the sins were so completely atoned for and justification is so perfectly and completely purchased that he was raised triumphantly from the dead. So... I invite you, indeed I plead with you, open your heart to receive this great God. Lean on Him. Trust in Him. Rest in Him. Bank on His promises. Relax in Him. Anytime Satan whispers your guilt in your ear, 
renounce it and fall back again on your righteousness, which is outside of you in heaven, Jesus Christ. Lord, if you don't wash us, we remain unclean. If you don't save us, we remain lost. So come now and seal the work that you have been doing in this hour, I pray, as the word of God runs and triumphs in the begetting of faith and in the justifying of sinners. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.